Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, and maybe a little challenged. Now, we're not trying to change your mind. We just think that in a world that's so divided, there is power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, what sports mean for America. My name is Jennifer Molia. I am from Long Island, New York. I grew up a Rangers fan and a Mets fan. And the Rangers play at Madison Square Garden, which is literally right next to Penn Station. I probably started going by myself when I was like 14 or 15. I would just take the train maybe like half an hour from my house there, and then you pop out and you're right there. My favorite part of it was always warm-ups before the game. Because at NHL arenas, well, at most NHL arenas, they're supposed to let you go down to the glass for warm-ups no matter where your seat is. And I loved it because I always got like the cheapest ticket. I just wanted to get in the door. Um, and so my couple friends and I, we would like get there super early and go down to the class. We would make signs, we would have our jerseys. We would usually like wait outside the arena before and after too to like meet players, which was always fun. A lot of people would say that just by like knowing me and talking to me, they wouldn't think that I have an anxiety disorder um, because I am very outgoing and outspoken and honest and energetic and enthusiastic and all that stuff. My first panic attack was in gym class. Um, and we were playing six base, which is like kickball, basically, if there's six bases, as the name suggests. And I got to like third or fourth or something, and I just randomly got like so freaked out, like watching the clock, like looking around me, like overanalyzing everything around me, like palms were sweaty, freaking out. And I remember turning to the girl next to me and being like, yeah, did you just get really nervous all of a sudden? And she was like, no. And I was like, cool. Like obviously like school anxiety is very real. I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't really fitting anywhere. I had like some family things I was trying to work through. So I went to therapy and she sort of helped me come up with like some coping mechanisms for stuff like that. One of the things that really worked for me was having a sense of like community. I'm big on like the chosen family thing. So, you know, going to games was a big way for me to find community. Even if I wasn't with friends and I was by myself, you're in a building and if it's Madison Square Garden, it's usually close to sold out. So you're in a building with all these people and it's like, this common goal and this common thing that you all love and you all root for and cheer for, and you all are happy about the same things and sad about the same things, you know, not in the grand scheme of life, but in this microcosm, in this building. Um, and that was something that I sort of took comfort in because like, yes, I'm in a space where I probably have nothing in common with a lot of these people the same way that I am like at school, but there was like this common thread that everybody shared. And I just loved that. I loved you know, wearing the same color jerseys as everybody and everybody, you know, as soon as the goal gets scored, everybody jumps up out of their seats. Like that was just something that I really found comfort in. And I just, I don't know, I, I wasn't anxious there. <laughs> Most Americans identify as sports fans. It's actually more common to be a sports fan in America than it is to be a churchgoer. And I'll admit I am one of those people who has often considered that a little worrisome. After all, sports fans are obsessive and tribal and prone to mob behavior like tearing down goalposts or attacking rivals. Okay, I'm generalizing, but we've all seen the headlines and the viral videos. Would the country be better off if fewer Americans were sports-obsessed? Now, plenty of non-sports fans like me might say, yeah, we could do with a lot less of the hyper-competitive, hyper-commercial influence of sports fandom in our society. And many sports fans themselves will say we'd be better off without the bad apples among them who take things too far. But, and much as I find this incomprehensible as someone with zero interest in following sports, being a fan is clearly good for lots of people, like Jen Molia. And we need to get to the bottom of that if we're going to question the value of sports fandom in American society. It's funny because it was always just sort of something that like existed in my life. And I kind of thought that it was like that for everybody. Molia is a sophomore in college now studying to be a sports journalist. So I'm an only child and my parents are divorced. So that's a 
blow their can of worms. Whoever's house I was at, it was on TV or on the radio where we were driving out to a Mets game or something like that. I remember when the Yankees won the World Series in 2009, I was in first grade and I was so upset because I'm a Met fan. And so I decided that I was gonna go into school the next day wearing my, I think it was an Ike Davis Met shirt. And my mom was like, why? Like, she was like, they're gonna bully you. And so I marched my happy self into class in my little shirt and they made me cry in my first grade class. They were like, you're so stupid. Why are you doing this? Like the Mets literally suck so bad. The Yankees just won the World Series. And I cried so hard that my first grade teacher was like, go to the bathroom and like fix yourself. Like I was like in it from like the beginning for sure. In junior high, Molia started writing about the Rangers and the Mets on sports blogs and social media. She gave a TED Talk in high school about how being a sports fan helps with her anxiety disorder. I've met some of my best friends from, like, hockey Twitter, which is, like, crazy to think about. Like, one, one, of, my, one of my best friends who lives on Long Island, not too far from me, I met him, I think, like, I was 14, which means he was probably, like, 16. And we're still friends. I still talk to him every day. We met because we wrote for the same, like, Rangers blog when we were in high school. Like, it's, it, it's very crazy to think about that. <laughs> so um, do you think that there is a downside, can be a downside to sports fandom in particular? Yeah, yeah. I would say it definitely needs to be, like, executed with discretion, if that makes sense, because it certainly has been like a coping mechanism for me. But I think that if too much dependence is put on it, then that can be unhealthy. Like, I I don't have the exact numbers for this, but I've seen advertisements um, from the UK that like domestic violence rates go up when like their soccer teams lose which is, like, insane to think about. And I wouldn't be shocked if similar statistics came out for, like, uh, sports in the U.S. But I definitely think there are people that get too emotionally invested in it. And, like, gender in sports is definitely an intersection that I look at a lot. Like, I remember I I went to a game with my dad for Father's Day, and I was... it, It was a Mets game, and they were losing, as usual. And I was, like, making some sort of comment about, like, a decision I thought the team should make. And a man in front of us turned around and, like, tapped my dad and was like, don't you wish you had a son to take to these games instead of her? And I was just kind of sitting there like, I'm right here. And there's definitely been more moments like that. Like, I remember specifically when I was, I was probably 15, I was writing for the New York Rangers site under Fansided. Um, and I wrote an article about Ron Duguay and how I kind of thought it was time for him to just kind of go away respectfully. Um, cause he, he was making comments about women's hockey that I was just not vibing with, like to just stop. And so I wrote an article about that and I was like, his views are outdated. He's discriminating against women. He needs to go. And that was the article while I, in my time at Fansided, which was probably about two years, got the most traction, the most comments, the most views, because it was older men commenting, you don't know what you're talking about. You're a stupid girl. You're 15 years old. Like, stuff like that. So it's definitely like, I feel like annoying is the best word for it because it irritates me and it makes me angry, but it's never once made me be like, I'm giving up, like I'm done with this. Um, It almost serves as like more motivation. You know what I mean? What role, when you think about your life 10, 15, 20 years from now, what role do you see your sports fandom playing? Well, I hope it can maybe get me a job (laughs) when I graduate. Um, I think that more places are looking to hire fans. So I definitely think that like having, it sounds silly, but like experience as a fan can almost help you get hired. Like if if I can show, hey, I've had a Twitter account since I was 13 where I've talked about sports and I can show you that I've been following sports on social media for this long, like that can go a long way. Jen Molia's ambitions align directly with her sports fandom. But even if you're not working in sports, there is evidence that the bigger a sports fan you are, the more satisfied you are with your job and the more friends you have and the happier you are in your relationships and the more kindly you look on people of the opposite political party. Sports can be the foundation of some of our most intimate relationships. And I think we want to reframe the conversation around fandom that can actually be a social good and that we should we should lean into that. Okay, wait. If sports fandom is a social good, 
That means it's good for all of us, whether we root for a team or not. How can that be? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Ben Valenta and David Sikoriak are sports marketers. Valenta is an executive at Fox Sports. Sikoriak is a consultant who used to be an executive at Madison Square Garden, working with the Rangers and the Knicks. The point is, they have an incentive to convince us that sports fandom is good for society. But they say they didn't set out to make this argument. Initially, they were just looking to sell more season tickets, says Valenta. And we encountered this gentleman, Greg, as part of a larger effort to understand season ticket holders. And, and so we went into it with some, some hypotheses that we, were, we ultimately we, we busted them as myths. One important tidbit there for um, the listeners who are, are not um, familiar with the Knicks. Sure, go ahead, David. They've been horrible for the last 20 years. <laughs> I, and I say this as a Knicks fan. So why would somebody who is this average Joe, and I, and I say that as a, as a compliment um, to Greg, he manages a grocery store in up, upstate New York. It's not like he's swimming in um, disposable income, but yet he makes the time and spends the money to go see this team 30 times a year for what has been for the larger part of his, uh, his ownership of these tickets, bad basketball. Exactly. And we, do, we, don't, we don't get it, and we want to get it. And we go to a game with Greg. And you walk into the, to the garden with Greg, and he knows everybody in his section. This whole network of people comes to life when he walks into the garden. He knows all the ushers, right? He knows the, the guys running the concession stand. He walks into the section, and everybody kind of shouts his name. He starts dapping people up. The people sitting next to him, he has shared the, the tickets with, with them. Um, they, they own a set. He owns a set. And um, they are lifelong friends. They've only ever interacted with each other in the garden, right? But they know each other's kids. They've watched the kids grow up. Uh, they had this like intimacy that you can feel. Like we're sitting there next to them as strangers, observing the interaction, and you can feel the intimacy, right? So we 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 have that experience. Then we go to a, a barbershop with him. He walks into the barbershop, and the whole the whole situation kind of turns to him, and is focused on on the Knicks. Um, it's focused on uh, you know just everybody kind of giving each other a hard time, uh, talking about their their teams and trash talk about about the, you know, the current Knicks iteration. You know, somebody's a, a Nets fan. They start kind of, like, busting his chops. Like, this whole, like, lovely 90-minute interaction kind of unfolds from his Knicks fandom. And then the, the coup de grace here is we, we talk to him about who he goes to the games with. That's where this all kind of clicks for us because we realize that he's not going to the game because of the game. He's going to the game because he's going with his son. So all of a sudden, the commute to the garden, that 90 minutes, it turns out to be a feature, not a bug. We saw it as an impediment to going to the game. Why would you do that? All of a sudden, he's got 90 minutes of one-on-one -on -one time with one of his sons, right? To the garden, back from the garden. He's not buying an entertainment product. He's not buying season tickets to this team. It's not about loyalty to the team. It's He's buying belonging. He's buying that connection with uh, his sons and those people around him. So what was the myth, uh, I guess the hypothesis going in, um, that, that, that this Greg encounter um, dashed for you? Well, the, I think the idea that, like, winning is the most important thing. Like if you, and that we put these things in, like, a, a team framework where the, where the winning matters and the product on the court is the most salient piece of the purchase decision. And what we found is that it's not about the people on the court. It's about the people in the stands. So sports fandom is not about sports, <laughs> really. Exactly. And then at, at some point we decided, look, if you play this out, if to be a fan is to be part of a community and social relationships are incentivizing the behavior, then the bigger the fan you are, the more friends you should have. And so we, you know, we wrestled with that for a little bit, found a way to test this quantitatively, put it in our surveys, and it came out every single time that the bigger fan you are, the more friends you have. And then attaching to that, we, we began, this, this is where we began pushing it. Cause like that was an interesting insight, which we then validated, but we just kept pushing. Well, if you have a, you know, if you have more friendships and you value those friend relationships more and you interact with those friends more and you interact with your family more and value those relationships, well, you should be happier. 
And as we, you know, do, um, document in the book that the bigger fan you are, the happier you are, the more confident you are, the less lonely you are. And we, we started to see interesting patterns um, that kind of led us really to push the envelope farther than we ever would have thought um, into the area of polarization. Is this really any different from any other kind of fandom, though? Uh, I could think of people who, you know, go to comic cons or, you know, various pop culture franchises, TV shows, music, theater, video games that also have a lot of, you know, you can own the memorabilia and watch the shows or whatever it is, right? Lots of different ways to engage and to spend money on engaging. And is there any reason that sports fandom has a different impact on people's relationships and social networks? Yes, and there's, there's a couple factors um, involved here. To start, like Ben and I will say, like, if there's other things that you're into that are, um, you know, relationships are built off of and you can interact in a positive way with other people, go do it by all means. You don't need sports to do those things. But there's an important, you know, there's a couple important pieces that, that differentiate sports than these other things. And the first and the most important here is scale, right? There's half of the American population um, by some of our measures are, are sports fans, um, you know, bumping into somebody and talking, you know, being able to talk, you know, you'd go into a bar, you could talk the NFL versus talking about the Game of Thrones or the Sopranos or something. You just, you have a greater likelihood of bumping into somebody that can actually talk about sports and have those pleasant um, interactions. You also mentioned in the book that sports has this very reliable recurring cadence, especially if you're into multiple sports, right? Like it never ends. There's always some, you know, championship or some playoff within a couple of weeks of of wherever you are at that moment on the calendar. And, and that's important of just, you always have this thing to tap into to say, hey, how's it going? Or you want to watch the game? Or uh, what are you doing for this? So if you think about, I'm so I'm a sports fan. Um, I am in a fantasy league for the NFL with a bunch of college buddies. Um, my, my family is back in Colorado. They're all, sorry, three brothers, my father and my mother. They're all really into the Denver Broncos, right? So just those two groups alone accounted for on Sunday, I conservatively 300 text messages, right? Just like a constant thread, a barrage of, of conversation that's happening between about 20 people, right? Those things would have otherwise not taken place. I would not have had those interactions without the NFL on Sunday. And I think that's what we want to do is sort of shine a light on those everyday interactions that are happening and then lean into those things. Send the text message to your family when the home team is playing, right? Um, reach out to your college roommate when the team makes a miraculous comeback or gets pummeled by a, by a rival. Like, it doesn't matter. It's just a reason to get in touch. Send that message. Invite somebody over for a game. All of that additional connection is ultimately good for you. Ben Valenta, the Fox Sports executive, and David Sikoriak, the former Madison Square Garden and NBC executive, have put all this research, which included surveys and focus groups with more than 30,000 people, into a new book they have titled Fans Have More Friends. But their core claim is bigger. They think sports fandom can help reduce polarization in American society. For example, says Valenta, when they asked about police and racial discrimination on surveys, the superfans, what they call high-value fans, were less polarized politically. If you're a Democrat who voted for Joe Biden and you're a high-value fan, you have a higher opinion of the police than if you are a Democrat who is not a fan. And the same works on the, on the other side of the equation. If you are a, a Trump voter who's a Republican and you are a high-value fan, you will have a better opinion of the Black Lives Movement than if you are a Trump voter who's a Republican who's not a fan. It kind of moves the, the needle in both directions. So do super sports fans, high-value sports fans who are Democrats see Republicans more positively and vice versa? Yes, it's, a, it's called a temperature reading and it's just like a thermometer scale. From, from zero is cold to 100 is hot. You ask Republicans how they feel about the other side, and you ask Democrats how they feel about the other side, and then you split that those responses by their engagement with sports. And what we find is that the, the bigger fan you are, the warmer your feelings of the other side will be, regardless of party. But that's so weird because sports, I mean, sports is so, so fundamentally tribal. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like there's always going to be a winner. There's always going to be a loser. And people do get very, very worked up about their teams and about their rivals, you know. And w why would being a fan of sports make you less tribal politically? 
So I, uh, there's two things, um, and it kind of goes back to the original conversation here. Like you are socializing more, you have more friends, you interact with more people. And just being exposed to more people is going to soften you in some respect. You know, be, us being on an opposite side politically, but if we do share our passion for the Yankees together, we have something to talk about that doesn't fall into that, that trap. What Dave's describing there is, is sociologists would call contact theory, right? Like you just are in contact with more different types of people, and therefore you have a broader perspective on the different types of people that are out there in the world, right? It creates more empathy in your approach to uh, the world around you. The second part is identity complexity. So we are polarized on very various measures of identity. So whether it's education, religion, race, um, where we live in the country, and those things are kind of are, are are driving us apart. What sports fandom does, it's an identity. The Dallas Cowboys identity. We you know the example we use is of uh, of Stephen um, when we're talking about identity. He's a Dallas Cowboys fan. He's also Nigerian. His parents came to the country, immigrated to the country through Catholic charities. They, they found a home in, um, in New Jersey. They had three boys within a few years of each other. Um, and the way the mom differentiated between the kids' clothes and bed sheets and everything was she uh, bought one kid, Stephen, um, the da Dallas Cowboys, um, the other uh, Philadelphia Eagles, and the other what was then called uh, the Washington Redskins. And the three of them now, uh, they're around 50, have all been shaped by this kind of identity they or their mom handed down to them. But... In, in Stephen's case, still quite proud of it. And he will tell you he's, you know, he's Nigerian, but he also will tell you in the next breath that he's a Cowboys fan. And the more complex your identity, you know, the less likely you are to sort of identify and demonize another group that's different from you. It, it dilutes the pull of any of those other one identities, right? So if you add Cowboys fan to a list of, of four identities, now, you've, in a relative sense, you've weakened the pull of, of any one of those five identities. That's, that's fundamentally what's happening. And how do you square all of this with the bad behavior that also does happen? Vandalism, you know, assault, sometimes just real ugliness in the stands, <laughs> mob destruction, uh, you know, of public property. Do you have to kind of just like push all of that aside in order to really embrace the power of sports fandom? I don't think you have to push it aside. I think we have to put it in context. Like, we are not trying to look at this space with, with rose-colored glasses and just ignore that there are some, some negative aspects to this. I think, I think there's sort of two parts to, the, to this answer. The first is, because sports operate at such scale, they effectively interact with society at large. And so you're going to get bad apples in that group, right? Um, I just watched a video on Twitter of a 55-year-old drunk Cleveland Guardian fan picking a fight with a 55-year-old drunk New York Yankee fan at Yankee Stadium, right? And they get in this, like, really awkward fight, and people are laughing at it. But those guys, I would argue, have some problems, right? I think those guys would probably be getting in fights at a bar or at a stadium or anywhere else that they would find themselves because there's probably some things that are going on in their lives that are, that are not great, right? I wouldn't pin that on sports, um, specifically, I would just say there's problems in society and because sports are so big, they manifest across these different groups. And sometimes these things kind of flare up in the context of sports. Um, but when we focus only on that conception of fandom, we miss all the connection that's happening in the same section in the stadium. We miss the father-daughter. We, we miss the, the family there together for the first game. We miss the little leaguers that are all getting together uh, trading baseball cards. We, we miss the college buddies so on and so forth. All these different points of connection and positive interactions are missed when we focus on the sliver of bad behavior that's out there. The fact, though, that it's expensive to be a fan. Are we saying that the solution to polarization and loneliness or one big solution or one big tool here, this, it, this treatment is also going to cost us? I, I think there are certain elements of the fan experience that are certainly expensive and the prices are going up. And we should find ways as an industry, I, I would argue, to make sure we can introduce sports fandom to the widest possible group of people and make this accessible. At the same time, I, I want to push back a little bit on the premise because I think you can be a big sports fan engaging in this stuff and, and you're already doing a lot of this stuff. They're already kind of sunk costs, right? So if you have a cable subscription, you have access to a lot of sports on television, right? Um, most fantasy football platforms are free. You've got a cell phone in your pocket already and you can send text messages to people. Um, you know, the, the, the additional cost, like if you, talk, you start getting like season tickets, 
Now we're talking about a, a, a big expense, but there's not a lot of things on the list of activities that we measure and by which we use to define fans that cost a tremendous amount of money or that you're not already doing anyway. I think our, what we're trying to do is say, this is already happening at a societal level. Like we see a great swath of the population that's already doing this behavior. Just be aware of what's happening and then come back, come back to the idea of embracing it. Lean into it. And we'll get that much more benefit out of uh, the, 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 the money you're already spending. It, it, I mean, there is a little bit of tension here, though, because we're talking about sports fandom as being good for society um, and for individuals. It's also controlled by private entities with profit motives. Can it, can it really accrue to the benefit of society when ultimately it's for profit? But the benefits are happening. Like we're, we're, you know, we're experiencing it right now and there are profit in it. And, you know, that's the structure of our, our system, so to speak, that there's going to be profit seekers and extractors and they're going to try to get as much out of this. Um, and yeah, that's a bigger problem uh, to, to just. But this thing does exist. People experience it in a very organic, um, simple way. And, you know, it, it has Ben has already talked about this. It has advanced my fandom, um, where me understanding what it is and how it benefits me and how it benefits others and made me, who's more of an introvert, a little bit more extrovert, a little bit more purposeful in, in reaching out to people. And yes, somebody might might profit off of that, uh, my, my greater interest, but the socialization, the positive kind of knock-on benefits are, are still happening. Is there anything, any responsibility or anything that you would like to see um, the leagues themselves, the athletes themselves, the teams themselves do to um, to bolster this good for society? What we're arguing for ultimately when it comes to, to the teams and the leagues is that we want to reorient how, reorientate how we think about the business that we're in. Is to say, this, this really ultimately is not an entertainment product that you're selling. It's, it's about connection, it's about belonging. Let's think of the world through that lens. And I think if we do that and accomplish that goal, then we'll all be in a better place. Ben Valenta is a senior vice president of strategy and analytics for Fox Sports. And David Sikoriak is the founder of Dexterity Consulting. They are co-authors of Fans Have More Friends, which is based on their extensive survey and uh, focus group research. Ben, David, thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the time. Thank you for reading and, uh, and going into it. We really appreciate that. It was a pleasure. Thank you. When we decided to do this episode about sports fandom, I admit I came in with a negative bias, not being a fan myself. So I reached out on social media for stories that might get me thinking differently. And one that came back really did challenge some of my assumptions. It is about a mixed marriage, a sports fan husband and his non-sports fan wife. And since it's the wife writing in with this story, I am expecting the stereotypical lament about all the time her husband wastes watching and talking sports. But that is not this story. Their names are Soraya and Aji Langenbelek. And Soraya says she knew Aji was a huge, lifelong Green Bay Packers fan when they got married. But a few years into their marriage, it dawned on her that he wasn't watching games or talking about the Packers as much as he used to. So she asked him about it, and he said that he has made a point of doing that stuff with other people because he knows she's not interested. And when she asked how he felt about that, he admitted it made him a little sad. So, and I really have to admit, this is not the path I would have chosen. Soraya decides to become a football fan. Like, not just learn the rules and some team names. She picks a team. She picks the Las Vegas Raiders as her team to root for so that she's invested. They don't even live in Vegas, by the way, which makes this story even more charming to me. She learns everything she can about the Raiders. And now, watching NFL games with her husband becomes a bonding activity rather than feeling like a waste of time. She gets a kick out of surprising her husband's friends by joining in the sports talk when they're over. Three years into all of this, they just went to their very first NFL game together as a couple. They traveled to Vegas for it. Soraya wore her black and white Raiders jersey. She's become what Valenta and Sikoriak would call a high-value fan. And here's one more thing. She says she's noticed lately that Aji is reciprocating by learning about some of her interests, which she says has made for some unique conversations and moments together.
Now, before hearing that story, I would have had a much harder time believing Ben Valenta when he said that sports can be the foundation of some of our most intimate relationships. But the influence of sports on America is not all warm and fuzzy. And if we're going to embrace it as a social good, there are a few things we need to examine, like how it shapes our views on masculinity and patriotism, and even the American dream. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. In general, I think the most interesting things about sports are what they can tell us about the, the non-sports aspects of our world and our culture. This is Mike Serrazio. I'm a associate professor in the communication department at Boston College, and I'm the author of uh, The Power of Sports, Media and Spectacle in American Culture. If a couple of sports marketing executives told you that sports fans have more and deeper friendships, that they're more grateful, that they're happier, that they're even more satisfied in their jobs. <laughs> would you, would any of that surprise you? Wouldn't surprise me at all. Because I would argue that in some ways, that's the most important reason for sports. Um, it's certainly one of the driving factors for why people become fans. Do you think there's anything particularly distinct about sports fandom in America versus you know, anywhere else in the world. The nature of American sports is highly commercialized in contrast to much of the rest of the world. The kind of market and sort of capital pressures take precedence uh, above all. And I'll give you, actually, I'll bring it back to my own, uh, my own sad fandom story. The San Diego Chargers were a franchise that uh, proudly, if, uh, if not so uh, uh, glorifyingly, represented uh, San Diego for the better part of five decades. Um, this is not a fandom that I would recommend for anyone anywhere uh, if they enjoy uh, success and joy uh, to come out of their fandom. But nonetheless, it is the thing that binds me to uh, much of my family. I grew up in San Diego, and it was the one of the reasons over the years, particularly as my grandfather got old, that we were able to maintain uh, you know, a reason to sort of call him up every few weeks and have something to talk about at a point in time where by virtue of geography and age, we were separated tremendously. And the Chargers ownership uh, demanded more or less that the taxpayers of San Diego build, you know, build a new stadium for the team. It was put to a public referendum. The city of San Diego, to its credit, said no, like, you know, this should be something that should be privately financed, which is very rarely done. The ownership picked up the team and hauled it off to Los Angeles. That is a story of loyalty to capital and loyalty to money as opposed to loyalty to tradition or community. And so that, I think, is in many ways a defining feature of American sports fandom. So is, is your relationship with the Chargers fundamentally a story of unrequited love? It is absolutely a story of unrequited love. One of the amazing ways that franchises are able to, um, to trick fans, in a sense, is that they convince you to love something that will fundamentally never love you back. My grandfather, you know, he passed away uh, about five years before the team moved. So he never saw the betrayal then? He never saw the betrayal, although, you know, I'm sure that he suspected uh, ownership would be capable of such a stab in the back when he was alive. No, I mean, he made it to his 90s. For him, um, football, and I think this is true for a lot of people in general, but, but certainly for, you know, sometimes elderly folks, Football becomes, in some ways, the thing that got him through the weeks, right? It's like it's like time passed faster for him, particularly in his older years when he was, you know, suffering through health and suffering through, you know, a decade of of living past his uh, my grandmother's um, passing. You know, it became, I think, a source of light for him and and a source of joy. And I I think that I still see in the Chargers, I still see reflected our relationship and I still see reflected that sense of tradition, that sense of something that's handed down. And there's not too many of those things in contemporary society. And so when you have them, you hold on to them. You don't give them up, even if they give you up for, you know, a bigger market 90 miles north on the five. So is this good for America on the whole? I mean, are there any downsides, do you think, to a profit-driven enterprise? Um, being also 
like so fundamental to the relationships and the sense of well-being for so many people in this country. You've described precisely the ambivalence that's at the heart of sports, right? On one hand, it's a powerful vessel for community. It is something that brings people together at a time when very few other things in our culture and our politics and our media and our society do. It is also the case that a lot of money can be made on it. And that um, lucrative potential warps the decision making away from oftentimes the very thing that it's based upon, which is which is the sense of community, which is the sense of, of loyalty. But if you pushed me, I'd say it's worth the cost because because we have so little that approximates that societal power nowadays in terms of in terms of an institution like sports. What else is there? What what what? Um, what could do this for us if it wasn't sports? I'm hard pressed to think of something. I mean, I, even like other stuff on television that that in theory everybody could be watching together, you can't watch together because so much of the best television nowadays is incredibly bewildering. And you can't just like jump into Game of Thrones or Stranger Things or any of like the best TV shows of the last decade without having spent 50 hours in advance watching all the previous seasons. You just can't catch up in that way. Sports, relative to those other things, gives you a pretty quick ladder up to a space of culture that, you know, a lot of people can access once they learn the rules, which are not tremendously complicated. Um, And so I think that adds tremendous power. And the last thing, too, is that it's live. Nothing else in our culture is live nowadays. Like, you have to be you have to be attending to sports when it's happening. And very little else demands our attention in the moment and synchronizes our lives in those ways, quite like sports does. And this is where some of the parallels to religion come in. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's filling a vacuum there, right? So like the number of Americans who are not officially affiliated with any kind of religious practice continues to grow. Right now, it's about 60 million Americans who do not identify. They're, according to Pew Research, they're called nuns, and they're, they're more or less folks who have no kind of formal religious affiliation. I believe that sports is potentially providing those folks and religious folks as well with exactly what religion has provided people for centuries, right? So on one hand, it provides um, this kind of tribal organization, right, which is long something that religion had, had furnished. It gives people the language of belief. You're constantly rooting for something that's extremely unlikely to happen, right? Just, I mean, you know, there's 30 or so teams in each league each year chances that your team is going to win it all is really low. And yet we convince ourselves, we delude ourselves into believing it, right? Especially if you're a fan of a team like the Chargers. Exactly. Um, A team like the Chargers, or I mean, if you think about it, one of the most um, sort of beloved, esteemed American fandoms is the Chicago Cubs, right? Um, Which prior to 2016 had not won a World Series in like a century, right? And and, and, And yet they have the language of faith. You got to believe, you got to have faith, right? Um, Sports gives us, uh, simulates uh, feelings of moral judgment, right? So like my team is good and my team's rival is evil. Like that language of good versus evil maps onto sports and it's borrowed from religion. And, and sports just fundamentally provides people with meaning making. I think that other forms of culture used to do that. Sports still inspires in the way that maybe art or religion would have done so for previous kind of epochs. You know, it's, it's, it's something that's handed down in the way that faith is, um, you know, like it's not like you don't usually have like a, you know, a couple that's like Baptist and they're like they have a kid and they're going to raise that kid Buddhist. Right. I mean, you don't have a family around here in Boston that's going to bring their kid up Yankees fan. So we see in all these ways, you know, down to like being buried in your team gear. My grandfather, you know, at his funeral, we brought up his Chargers hat to the altar. I'm speaking with Mike Sorazio, who is a professor of communication at Boston College and author of The Power of Sports, Media and Spectacle in American Culture. So you describe in your book um, sports in America as a cultural mirror. And so I'd love to kind of talk about some of the ways, some of the things that reflect back at us when we look at sports. Um, We talked about the hunger for connection. What else, though, stands out to you? Yeah, I mean, a few big things that we can obviously talk about are the politics within sports and the sort of gendered experience within sports. Um, I should add that most fans prefer sports to be escapist. Most fans 
don't want sports to reflect or don't want to pay attention to the ways in which sports reflect life off the field. So, you know, when you ask fans, should sports and politics mix? Um, a study that I conducted about five years ago found that half of all fans did not want sports and politics to mix. So a study of kind of Americans nationwide. Um, and, and, and that has a slight partisan inflection to it. So, um, you know, the, the more conservative that you identified as, the more you didn't want sports and politics to mix. Um, we're seeing a little bit of a shift. One interesting thing that has happened in the aftermath, I think, of, to some degree, Colin Kaepernick's, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, um, activism, but I would argue even more so the general, um, activism and, um, unrest and protests that followed George Floyd's murder in 2020. I think you're seeing a little bit of a shift where, um, more, uh, uh, more fans are, are, are showing some acceptance of the politicization of sports. You argue in the book that m- much as we would like to say, we don't think, you know, we want sports to be pure escape- escapism, that that things like um, race and gender and politics and, and the notion of what it means to be an American are, are all deeply embedded in sports. We, we just maybe don't recognize those things for what they are. Absolutely. And so that in some ways becomes how sports is 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 able to slip in lessons about what the world is like off the field of play. We've talked about about race, but another kind of big theme that um, that I find really fascinating is the fact that sports, more so than any other form of pop culture, justifies economic inequality. So the the idea here is that a lot of the narratives that you hear within sports revolve around the idea of a level playing field, right? When when you you know if if, if a team wins the championship or, you know, a star player gets the MVP and he or she is being asked after the game, how did you, you know, how did you achieve the success? They always talk about hard work, right? They always attribute their success to hard work. And when we did a national survey on this question, we basically asked people, are you a sports fan? And then we asked a series of questions that related to how they felt about economic inequality. Things like, you know, do you believe that people who are wealthy and powerful in society just work harder than everybody else and the poor are effectively lazy. And what we found is that, you know, sports fans were more likely than non-fans to believe that poor people are lazy and rich people work hard. And the idea here is that sports provides this kind of metaphor for a level playing field and for hard work overcoming any and all obstacles to succeed that people then take as gospel for what happens off the field of play in terms of wealth inequality. What else do uh, sports in America reinforce? Uh, what other lessons are we are we learning, however subconsciously, as fans? Well, the big one, the big one, it's not even really all that subconscious, is sort of gender politics. Um, I mean, this has been something that has never been very subtle in American sports. When it comes to women in sports as either athletes, as um, broadcasters, and also as fans— They've very historically been been deeply marginalized. At this point, you still see with regularity, you know, something on the order of, you know, 90 to 95 percent of sports coverage focuses on men's sports. Um, And it's even honestly built into language itself. Right. Like we have we have the WNBA. We don't have the MNBA. Right. (laughs) We have like the LPGA, but we don't have the MPGA. Right. Um, There's a way in which that kind of gender marking um, has historically defined um, female athletes and female athletics as secondary, as counterfeit, as a lesser version of. So quantitatively, women have gotten much less coverage. But but let me say this. If, if leagues were stocks, I would absolutely buy the National Women's Soccer League. I think that there is tremendous potential there, and not just because our national team uh, our, you know, U.S. women's national team has been so successful in international play. Um, I think also because soccer has not been gendered male um, in the same way that they, they basketball or baseball has been gendered male in terms of popularity over many years. And when you say gendered male, you mean like, um, you know, who plays football? Well, obviously boys do. But soccer is sort of like, uh, I mean, we know as many girls as we know boys who play soccer in our lives, probably. Exactly. Exactly. And so, um so that gives it tremendous upshot. You know, in the um, the U- women's Euro Cup, 
for soccer just set record ratings. The NWSL, National Women's Soccer League in the United States, just had record attendance for this year. There's a lot of, I mean, if you hope for gender parity, soccer is the sport that I think has the greatest potential for that. Let's talk for a moment about masculinity, because that's another related thing that you write about in your book, uh, Mike Serrazio, that sports reflects back to us, um, not very subtly, (laughs) but quite consistently. What do, what are we learning about, and especially what are boys learning about what it means to be a man from professional sports culture in America? Yeah. I mean, there's another one where you're seeing some really interesting changes happening. Historically, the historically, it's been the case that men in sports have been associated with sometimes what's called kind of hegemonic masculinity, which is like a kind of traditional sort of Clint Eastwood ideal for what the male is supposed to be tough, stoic, macho, plays through the pain. Um, those are those have been historic ideals for, for men within sports. And they're still very much the dominant ones. But I think what you've seen in the last decade and part of it has to do with the NFL concussion crisis. Um, but part of it is just some sort of interesting changes in sort of gender fluidity and norms. You've seen a more sensitive space for male athletes um, to take shape. Uh, you've also seen this with regard to athletes owning up to mental health struggles, um, male athletes, I should say, owning up to mental health struggles. And so I think that those are two ways in which between the concussions and between sort of owning up to mental health challenges, those are two things that are chipping away at that kind of, that sort of rock-like facade of kind of macho traditional masculinity. Um, It's still the norm. It's definitely, I mean, it's that sort of um, sort of toughness norm is still the norm, uh, but we're seeing some sensitivity creep in. Mike Sarazio, what does, what do sports in America, professional sports, um, tell us or show us or teach us about national identity? Well, I mean, it's a very interesting question. The moments at which we feel a part of the nation tend to be fleeting, tend to be, um, you know, tend to be often moments of crisis, right? Perhaps after a September 11th, perhaps, you know, um, times of war. Um, sports, though, uh, in a way that's, that's, that's much safer and, and more salutary than war, provides people with those, those experiences of national identity. Um, it can bring, I mean, some of the research on this shows outside of the United States, but around the world, you know, sports will decrease the likelihood of civil conflict. Um, you know, it will decrease the likelihood of civil war because it brings people together. For example, the the South African Springbok squad, um, the rugby team in the aftermath of the apartheid there, that was an example of, of how sports can bring together a deeply divided society. That being said, research also tends to show that sports can heighten the tensions between nations. So sports absolutely plays into nationalism. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, things like the Olympics and the World Cup especially is especially um, powerful and popular. Yeah. You know, when you think about patriotism, I was noting, I was just now thinking that um, the only times I ever stand, put my hand on my heart and sing or listen to the national anthem are at sporting events. I, I, you know, I'm not in a public school where we do that on a regular basis. And so I just, it just, it just occurred to me that like my, really my only patriotic experiences are also centered around sports, which I guess is interesting because oftentimes that also includes, if it's a really big game, that includes like fighter jet flyovers and like soldiers in uniform, (laughs) you know, like there's also a kind of a strong like military component often layered on top of that. Absolutely. I mean, President Dwight Eisenhower once said that the uh, the true mission of American sports is to prepare young people for war. Um, And there's a long uh, tradition in sports going back to like ancient Greece and ancient Rome, where um, sports was kind of anticipated as preparation for military activity. Uh, The fact that you know, for you and for many fans, the only moment of patriotic expression in a kind of public space is at a sporting event, um, is something that that even kind of increased, particularly during the first decade or so of the war on terror. Um, you had the you had the Pentagon financing these acts of patriotism on the field of play, whether it be, um, you know, showing soldiers overseas watching the games, whether that be thanking um, soldiers returning home, featuring service members at, at, at games being honored. The Department of Defense was, it, it was paid advertising. They were paying for the, for the exposure. They were paying the NFL. 
Yes. And John John McCain uh, and I believe it was Jeff Flake of Arizona, um, they were uh, two of the senators that sort of um, exposed that something that I think a lot of us had assumed was being done for free was about $10 million that, that went toward this type of patriotism. And it seems to sometimes have the desired uh, outcome. Our, our research suggests that sports fandom is correlated with more hawkish military attitudes, right? Uh, um, a belief, say, in the, you know, that the use of the American military should be a, you know, a first option in terms of uh, geopolitical strategies. Can you think of any examples of a sports team or franchise that seems to have really taken seriously its its role as more than just a diversion, but as a cultural mirror, the the influence that they have on our sense of national identity, what it means to be patriotic, what it means to be a man, you know, gender roles, those kinds of things. Are there any examples that you can think of where there's a team sort of owning the fact that they have influence and they they want to do better? Nothing immediately springs to mind, and that may be a testament to the groupthink and the cautiousness that often defines extremely lucrative um, business organizations. Um, so the idea here is that um, to, to take any of those steps toward, you know, being more enlightened, being more progressive on any of the ills that face sports would be risky and would risk backlash. And if Kaepernick taught us anything, it's that these leagues do not wish to have controversy in those ways. They don't want to kill the golden goose. Like sports leagues are a real golden goose right now. And I think taking a step in the direction that you suggest would, um, could risk some of that. Mike Serrazio is a professor of communication at Boston College and author of The Power of Sports, Media and Spectacle in American Culture. Can you think of any sports teams that are owning up to their influence on our culture and making changes? We'd love to hear it. Find us on social media or email your thoughts to topofmind at byu.edu. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Elizabeth Miller, Cole Cummings, Kimberly Beck, and James Hoops. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Christian Mockatel, Mitchell Towsley, and Brandon Lewis. And be sure to leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. By the way, we have a new YouTube channel. You could subscribe there as well. Just look for Top of Mind with Julie Rose. I'm Julie Rose, and we'll talk soon.